Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is sponsored by Hero Power. Support clean energy at no extra cost. Go to MyHeroPower.com and in less than two minutes, get Green E certified renewable energy certificates. They'll match 100% of your electricity use. Never pay more than ComEd rate. Your bill doesn't change. Your service doesn't change. Plus, get $25 off your first bill just for helping us fight climate change. Go to MyHeroPower.com. MyHeroPower.com. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment. Weekly concert listings. Weekly event listings. The environment. Travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader. Free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. I've been promoting this interview all day. First Ward Alderman Daniel Espada is joining us from his bunker somewhere on the near north side of Chicago. Welcome to the show, Daniel. Hey, Ben. I'm doing all right. Trying to stay healthy and sane as best as I can. Healthy and sane. That is a great suggestion for absolutely everyone. I was teasing, you're not really in a bunker, correct? No, no, no. In fact, I I very quietly and discreetly uh, work out of my back office my my wife is on conference calls all day from our house and we don't even have another bedroom that i could work out of oh my so where are you where, where are you as you speak to me right now so i am in the back of the first ward office we're closed to the public so i'm literally the only guy who comes in and out if it sounds a little echoey it's a great space we've got these 14 foot ceilings these big curtains that I can draw for a little privacy now and again. And I, I'm i this is the only time in my life I'll ever be able to say I live a 10-minute walk from my house. Okay. So it works out really well. All right. Now, before we uh, take uh, the deep dive and all the issues of the day, I have to point out uh, this is your first appearance on uh, my show. And uh, your uh, predecessor in this office was on my show a few times. So I just have to mention that Daniel is the alderman from the first ward in the city of Chicago. And his predecessor was Proco Joe Moreno, uh, who's probably listening uh, to this right now. And uh, so, <laughs> so Daniel, just tell uh, people uh, how it was that uh, you got elected. I know it's over a year ago, but let's just not assume that all our listeners know that this was a very contentious race, uh, and uh, it was a significant win for the progressives. And where is the first word for? Yeah, and there's another. That's young Dennis, the producer, <laughs> who's learned a thing or two. And where is the first ward? <laughs> so lots of stuff. To, and do you uh, share Proco Joe's uh, 
blinding, blinded love for everything 1990s related rock and roll. Uh, a lot of questions for you to answer. So take them in. Which, <laughs> he loves, I uh, love Kurt Cobain. Oh my goodness. Uh, so, uh, so tell me, let's take them one at a time. Uh, where is the first word? That's a good enough question to start with. So that, that tends to be the most difficult of those questions to answer because I think the first word is only second to the second word in its gerrymanderedness. Um, but the first word cuts through various pieces of Logan Square, Humble Park, and West Town. It, it starts up at Lathrop Homes, a really beautiful CHA community, uh-huh. down through the eastern side of Logan Square, up along the 606. And then it cuts along Western Avenue and then scoops down into the East Village, Ukrainian Village, West Town, and then back up into Wicker Park. Yeah, it is. If you look at it on a map, it's ridiculous. But the second ward, you're right, is even more absurd. Uh, I will not give the whole history of why the second ward was drawn the way it is. Uh, except to say they did two things. One, they ice Bob Fioretti, and two, they consolidated all the uh, major industrial uh, sites that are being transformed into residential or commercial development or were being transformed uh, into one ward so they could be easily controlled uh, to benefit developers. That's my humble fear- theory, Daniel. You may not agree with it, but uh, I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, all right, so you got elected alderman of the first ward last year. As I said, it was a tough battle. Talk a little bit about it. Yeah, February 26th was both election day and also my 38th birthday. So it was wow, one young. of the most stressful birthday, birthdays I'll have for a while. I, I knew going into it, it was going to be a difficult race. Um, the former alderman had about 10 times as much funding behind him as I did. His last few races had been won by about 120, 180 votes each time. Um, But I I both believed in the values that I saw in our community. And I believe that from the work that I'd done on affordable housing, on community development, uh, that I could speak into the concerns that we were experiencing in ways that were both honest and effective. So people don't just want to hear values. They want to hear genuine ideas about how you put those values into action. Folks, I think, don't want to just hear what you say no to. They don't want to just know, I'm not that other guy, but they want to know how government is going to be different under you. And I'm really grateful that the residents of the First Ward would give me this opportunity to show that we can do government in a way that is transparent and effective and equitable and free from a lot of the corruption that folks have been experiencing. Now, um, do you have a, an ideology or a worldview that uh, is, uh, well, I, I'm phrasing this as a question, and I, as I, in the middle of the question, I start <clears throat> making it a statement. So let me just say it as a statement, and then and then you feel free to vigorously disagree with me. Uh, you have <laughs> a, a worldview that's uh, left of center. Uh, you're one of my beloved lefties, uh, and uh, Dem- I believe you are a democratic socialist, and I was going to say uh, it's 
uh, outside the mainstream, the traditional mainstream of Democratic politics, ward politics in the city of Chicago. Traditionally, Daniel, uh, before you got came here, they would make fun of people like you. And now there's, I think, six of your type uh, in the Chicago City Council. So maybe it's not as outside the mainstream uh, as, as uh, an oldie like me uh, believes. But when you were running, did, uh, was that used against you? Your ideology, did they try to paint you as too extreme for the first ward? Oh my gosh, they were, I don't tell this story much, but people were making fun of me for that when I was in high school. <laughs> I remember being in my AP English class. I forget now the play we were reading, but I had the gall to say that some folks don't have bootstraps to pull themselves up by. And to a person, including my teacher, people yelled the word liberal at me before I even knew what the word liberal meant. Um, and so it was interesting to see people want me to associate my values with shame and guilt. Um, but yeah, I, I think you're, you're spot on in terms of what I believe. I believe that the economy is meant to work for the good of the people and not the people for the economy to actually paraphrase Catholic social teaching. And the thing is like my, my, political ideology, if it can be said that I have one, comes from like living out of solidarity much more than anything that I've really read. I spent about the 13 years prior, really since I got to Chicago, either working with homeless residents, people who were losing their homes to rising rents uh, or to foreclosure. And I think it comes from being angry alongside those people and crying along those those folks and letting their lived experience, my lived experience, shape the kind of world that I want to be living in. And it, it does not look like the one that we have. It doesn't look like the one we had before my election or before this president. I, I, I'm one of many people who don't want to go quite back to normal because normal sucks for a lot of the people who are listening to this show and quietly trying to scrape by in Chicago. Uh, Daniel, you're, uh, you, you gave me a lot to work with there, uh, particularly the line associating your values with shame or guilt. I'm going to ask you to be, to go into that. But before I do, I just want to set the scene a little bit. So when, uh, when they mocked you and called you a liberal, which is funny because I would say what you were saying is a little more to the left than liberal, but whatever. Where were you then? Where were you growing up? Where'd you go to high school? I uh, would have been a senior in high school at South Plainfield high school back in New Jersey. I, I grew up a solid 2,000, no, 1,000 miles from here, about 45 minutes from New York City. But I came to Chicago August of 99 to start college at North Park University. And yeah, Albany Park and Logan Square have been my home ever since I got here. Wow, North Park, uh, that is a little different than uh, South Plainfield. So you're uh, definitely of the millennial uh, persuasion. Uh, you came of age in the 90s. Uh, Bill Clinton was the pre first president that you came to know. Were you one of the, the millennials that was inspired by Barack Obama? Was I inspired by Barack Obama? Um, I was one of the folks who watched from a house party rather than from Grant Park. 
if there was someone who really inspired my political life, and maybe he ends up listening to this, it was Representative Will Gazzardi. Um, because everybody else I had ever known who ran for office um, came from an organization, came from some kind of wealth or political dynasty. Uh, Representative Will Gazzardi was the first person I saw who came out of a community, came out of it solely from his values and his convictions and was able to be living a life and running a campaign that inspired people to think that government could look something different than what it was. Between him and then uh, Carlos Rosai, I saw people who both um, lived and operated and campaigned in ways that really inspired me to think maybe I could do this for myself. So you've picked two politicians, uh, two elected officials that are very sort of local in their focus, as opposed to uh, Barack Obama, who was uh, a president running at a national level. Uh, the lead, the follow-up I was going to ask is, were you disappointed uh, by the Barack Obama presidency? So I was going to say, if you're really inspired by him, were you disappointed? But since you were really, you weren't that inspired by him to begin with, you couldn't really be disappointed by him. I mean, I, I, I took a measure of inspiration from his presidency. If, if there's a disappointment that I have, if I may be frank, and I think we're about being frank on this show, I'm a little bit more disappointed by ex-President Obama than President Obama. Uh, I feel like community organizer Barack Obama would have some strong words for ex-President Obama um, in the way he relates to and negotiates community concerns, particularly around the Obama Presidential Center. Uh, that is put well put. I, I, I share your thoughts. I, I actually was inspired by Barack Obama when he ran in 2008 by the promise he, uh, he, he presented, was disappointed to a certain degree by how he presided, and I'm really disappointed uh, by his reluctance to speak out uh, as an uh, ex-president. Well, maybe he'll do better uh, in the coming campaign. All right, uh, so you're in the uh, city council, but before I do, you said something interesting, associating values with shame and guilt. What did you mean by that? Um, I, I had never before... Um, experienced people wanting me to feel bad about what I believe to be to be mocked for believing something related to compassion and I, I feel like at the time when I was in high school you you react to that one of two ways either it, it hardens your commitments your convictions or you you retreat from them. And I, I don't think at that point in my life I had the sense of self-worth and esteem to really lean into my convictions in that way. I, I think I lost track for a little bit of what I was fighting for. And I'm really grateful that after graduating from North Park, I, I fell in with organizations like Logan Square Neighborhood, Neighborhood Association and the People's Lobby who helped me to lean back into those convictions, to really learn how to organize and fight and gain some semblance of what leadership looks like. 
uh, and uh, you came to the Chicago City Council where they always, or they have a grand tradition, Daniel, I should say, of mocking uh, people who stand up for their convictions. Uh, Carlos Ramirez Rosie just uh, alluded to him, uh, alderman of the 35th Ward, told some uh, sort of darkly funny stories about how when he would stand up to protest uh, some inane uh, program that uh, Rahm Emanuel was trying to shove down their throats, the other aldermen would be like, oh, shut up, sit down. You, That's a nice, <laughs> nice shirt you're wearing. <laughs> It's like, man, the jocks in high school, sit down, man. And uh, so is is the temperament a little better these days in the Chicago City Council? Uh, Do they deride uh, lefty aldermen or idealistic aldermen uh, for speaking out about their their values? It's tougher when there's more of them to deride. Um, I I think it was incredibly tough for Carlos, and I've said this to him since, I have no idea yet what the pressure of a 49 to 1 vote feels like. And he went through a lot of this. Um, to experience something like I did last November, when you're going to vote no on a budget based on your convictions, it's not easy. There's, there's nothing easy about it, but to know that you have this set of like-minded colleagues who are going to be standing with you on that, at least it's a measure of the pressure off. Um, you don't always expect there to be a, a website afterwards calling out your no vote and trying to question the convictions behind it, but at least you know that you're going to be standing with people on it. And there's, a, there's at least a certain strength in numbers on that. All right, now let's just take a moment to uh, point out something about one of the quirks of the Chicago City Council. Uh, they So it, uh, Daniel is the alderman of the first ward, and the way they do it, they do it uh, in ascending order. So the first person to vote on any initiative is the alderman from the first ward. Years ago, the alderman from the first ward, way before Daniel Espada, way before Proco Joe Moreno, was a gentleman named Fred Rohde. And Fred Rohde was... Uh, a loyalist to whoever the mayor of the city of Chicago was, provided that mayor was not a black man. Uh, so you could always depend on Fred Rohde to vote with Mayor Daley or uh, Mayor the other Mayor Daley. Uh, and so if you were a, a mayoral loyalist and you wanted to know how to vote on something, all you had to do was do what Fred Rohde did. Okay, it was very simple. I mean, you can't expect aldermen to study this stuff. You're supposed to vote the way the mayor uh, tells you to vote. So how did Rody vote? I'll vote. Got a little different with Proco Joe. He was always sort of like wavering a little bit sometimes for whatever reason. He may have to vote against the mayor. So, like, if you're another alderman, you can't really depend on Proco Joe. Now you have a Democratic Socialist in the chair who uh, has... You voted against, uh, you just pointed out, Mayor Lightfoot's budget. We're going to talk about your vote on the, you know, her giving herself the extra budgetary powers. Is there pressure on you because you're the first vote <laughs> to get it right? It's an gonna... incredible pressure because you have no idea which way things are going to break uh, when you're the first ver- vote. I, I was saying to a colleague who, who sits in the back row, I won't call him out, but I was like, you you get to watch 20 or 30 votes pass before it comes to you. You can 
decide whether this is the day for convictions or not. But shoot, like I'm, I'm throwing myself out there with vote number one, and I, I have to stand by my convictions, whether they prove out to be popular or not in that given moment. But it also means with some of these parliamentary procedures, man, it can really throw you off to figure out what what is the actual vote that aligns with what I'm trying to accomplish. So I, I'm sometimes in the moment sending some some quick text messages to my colleagues <laughs> to ask, <laughs> okay, what 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 is what is the yes or no that accomplishes what we're trying to do right now? Yeah. Don't by the way. Never send a text message to me asking me for advice because I have dyslexia, <laughs> so I'll always get it reversed. I'm like, oh, man, and you'll vote the wrong way. And you'll blame it on me. Uh, <laughs> generally speaking, like what you do is you, if you want to figure out how to vote in the city council, my advice to you uh, is you take a look at how uh, Daniel Espada of the first ward votes and then compare it to, let's say, oh, who's a committee chair? Uh, how my old friend Scotty Wagusback of the 32nd Ward votes. Then you'll know. All right. You, which, of course, he's 32nd. So maybe you wait for Pat Dowell the third. Then you'll know. You'll have a good, because Pat Dowell will be with the mayor. Dan Lespada, Daniel Lespada may is a chance of not being the mayor. If there's a difference there, uh, if you're pro-mayor, you go whichever way Dowell went. And if you're uh, willing to stand up to the mayor, you go with Lespada. All right, Daniel, let's talk about, you talked about the budget vote that went down in, uh, good God, it's, a different uni political universe in November. But let's talk about the vote that went down about a week ago. Uh, I wrote about it. We talked about it on the show. It was the issue of whether the mayor should be granted, whether the council should grant the mayor extraordinary uh, powers over contracts uh, in the age of COVID-19. Uh, what was your position on this? Well, I voted it against the emergency powers ordinance. Um, quite frankly, because it would feel like a dereliction of duty for me to vote otherwise. If it was about procurement, and I, I think the, the media line about this was that it, it was more or less a procurement ordinance. We needed to be able to give the mayor the flexibility to, on a moment's notice, order the PPE and the ventilators that were necessary. Mm -hmm. The procurement piece of this, I had no problem. The economic disclosure piece, no problem. Um, but the, the fact of the matter is, is that we were going to hand over pretty much sole authority over the north of $500 million in federal assistance that was going to be coming into Chicago for our COVID-19 response. And that is not what I signed up for. That's not how I campaigned. I campaigned to listen and to legislate and to lead and govern. Uh, there's not a point where when people ask me, what do you do in the face of a crisis, that I said to them, well, I'm, I'm going to punt that responsibility to the mayor and trust that she's going to make the best of it. My job is to stay engaged. And I don't stay engaged by feeding responsibility, which is how I unfortunately viewed that ordinance. Now, the vote was uh, relatively close for Chicago City uh, Council standards and standing up to the mayor. I think it was 29 to 21, the mayor winning. Uh, in the past, it probably would have been 45 to 5. So it's a sign of 
uh, opposition growing to the mayor or aldermen willing to speak up to the mayor. Did you have anything remotely like what happened to Scott Wagesback? He tells a story back in the days when he was an independent opposing mayors as opposed to being the finance chair and in alliance with the mayor. Uh, he was warned by his seatmate, Richard Mel, that if he were to vote no on the Olympics, they would kill you. <laughs> Literally, I think that's what Mel said. Uh, and a lot of pressure put on him. Don't do it, kid. You don't know how you're going to screw up your career. Don't do it. Did anybody say that anything remotely like that? You look, kid, you don't understand how the game is played. Shut up and vote with the mayor. Did anybody go that route with you? You know, it was exactly the opposite. My seatmate, uh, Brian Hopkins, called me and asked me about my vote because he was planning to vote no as well. And he did vote no as well. And I, I tell you this to say there is solidarity, there's independence um, coming from some remarkable places on the city council. And I, I respect, and I think it's astounding that from that first set of chairs that you would have seen on the council, four out of five of them voted against that emergency powers ordinance. And I also want to give like a quick shout out to uh, Chairwoman Pat Dowell because when she was putting together her COVID-19 budget and contracting working group, she asked me to be a part of it and I accepted. And of the 10 aldermen serving on that, some of them were yes votes, some of them were no votes. They come from literally every ideological place on the council so i'm gotta gotta give some real credit where credit's due on that maybe things have changed a bit in the city council uh let, how did the mayor respond did she uh call you up and say hey i really need your vote or did she just leave you alone i did not get that call i i got that call where the budget was concerned uh i got that call from uh intergovernmental affairs um, where the emergency powers ordinance was concerned. And I, I tried to be very clear. Like, I, I will always say, here's, here's what would make me a yes vote. Here's what the non-negotiables are for me. And when things that I, I believe are reasonable can't be met, I have to go with my convictions and what the people of the first ward are telling me are their shared convictions about what government and responsibility is supposed to look like. Uh, Rick Munoz, who was uh, the alderman of the 22nd Ward for many years, uh, used to talk about how he was willing to swap uh, a vote that traditionally independents would not take. So he would vote yes with the mayor, but he would need a little something in return. So it was like this transactional attitude. All right, you want that yes vote? I need this t this TIF funds, or I need this road repaved, or this or that or the other thing. Uh, does that kind of horse trading uh, still happen in the Chicago City Council? Um, if it is, no one has offered me any horses <laughs> thus far. Okay. You have to give Rick a call. I'll tell you how to play the game, Daniel. <laughs> Here's how you play the game, son. Uh, never give up that yes vote for nothing. All right, so uh, the vote was 29 to 21. Uh, the mayor prevailed. Uh, so she will have authority uh, over a lot of money uh, going into the month of June. Are you concerned about that, Daniel, or are you uh, willing to put your faith and trust into Lori Lightfoot? 
I I put my faith and trust in God and nowhere really else besides that. Well, my wife too. Let me put my wife in that category. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I'm going to continue to work our our system of government as though that had not been developed. I'm going to continue to make the most of the opportunity to serve on this working group. Um, Chairman Harry Osterman on housing and real estate has set up working groups around rental assistance and homelessness. So I'm going to work those angles to make sure these community development block grant funds, these CARES flexible funds are used to provide stability for a lot of hurting Chicagoans right now. And if I'm doing that through indirect pressure rather than ordinances, um, so be it. But I, I owe it to my community to use every avenue to fight on their behalf. All right. Um, uh, let's move on to the issue of TIF funding and your TIF resolution. This is near and dear to my heart. TIF, of course, uh, this is my definition, not Daniel's, uh, is a slush fund uh, that is a, created as a surcharge on the property taxes that you, the people, pay. Uh, it's largely controlled by the mayor, uh, though she needs city council approval for uh, most uh, TIF uh, transactions, most TIF expenditures. You have a very interesting resolution uh, proposal out. Uh, tell people uh, about it, Daniel, regarding TIFs. I mean, first I need to call out the surrealness for me of talking TIF with you because <laughs> I'm, I'm one of those Chicagoans who back when you could you could do your weight training with a copy of the Chicago Reader. Uh, every week we had that yeah. Ben Jurafsky article where <laughs> I think it was halfway down the first column, you say, for those of you who haven't heard of tax increment financing, let me run it back to you. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much <laughs> how it went. out that moment for a second. Uh, <laughs> but now on to what we're trying to do right now. Um, so we, we have a lot of hurting small businesses out here right now. We have a lot of shuttered storefronts, a lot of folks trying to get back on their feet, a lot of unemployed workers. We have also TIF districts across the city based on how we all know that they function are healthy. Um, even when we do the surpluses that we do, our TIFs continue to bring in hundreds of millions of dollars every year. Right now, the most pragmatic, beneficial thing that these TIFs could do is rather than just doing the general TIF funds or infrastructure funds, it would be to open up these funds to, for a short term to make available small business, small business operating loans to help them meet payroll, to have the capital to get back on their feet. Um, in my conversations with Summer Corps, with our chambers, with state legislators, with other aldermen, everyone agrees that this is not only beneficial, but it's uh, logistically effective. Unfortunately, well, sometimes fortunately, this requires state action. We would need a temporary suspension or expansion of the rules that govern our TIP um, to allow this kind of use to move forward. But I would argue that it passes the but-for test. We know that but-for these funds being made available 
we will see hundreds of small businesses shuttered over the coming months. We know that it relates directly to blight because we are creating blight if we refuse to operate in this manner. Um, what surprises me is those who push back against it, who say, well, Alderman, we've got $12 million allocated for streetlight modernization in the Fullerton Milwaukee TIF. And we need these kinds of infrastructure projects to draw people back to small businesses. And I, I will say to you what I say to them. Like, we will not benefit from new streetlights shining into vacant storefronts. I'll take the small businesses any day. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the direction that I'm hoping that we go in. And we're finding a lot of both likely and unlikely allies around it. How, how's, what's the mayor's reaction been? Um, the mayor, the one time that we communicated directly on this, said that he would move forward with any means to get funding into the, into the hands of our small businesses. Um, that day, he had been helping to deliver meals from one of our restaurants that was struggling to stay open at the outset of this. And thankfully, like I've found EPD finance, the CFO's offer, the IGA team to be really great uh, partners in shaping this and thinking through some of the questions and the concerns. Uh, my great hope is that we'll be able to get this on the committee agenda um, to help this pass forward. So Gil, uh, Chairman Gil Viegas of the Capital Technology and Economic Development Committee, he's the committee that I've been assigned to. I'm, I'm glad I escaped the guillotine of rules committee uh, <laughs> in our last crazy city council meeting. Yeah. Uh, but I really hope that this makes it onto the agenda swiftly so that all of our caucuses at our city can really pressure the state to take swift action to free up these dollars to support our small businesses. Well, I, I probably will write about this, but I'm just listening to you and thinking about this. I say, I have to take a moment to point out the absurdity and the perversity of the way TIF law is interpreted in the city of Chicago. Dana, I'm going to say something right now that's me speaking. Uh, it probably will not help your bill in any way. Uh, but I'm going to say it anyway, I'm feeling this really strongly. So think about uh, what Alderman Laspada has said, everybody. Here you have a program that's intended to eradicate blight in the poorest of neighborhoods uh, in which we use our property tax dollars to spur development that wouldn't ordinarily happen without that. That's the purpose of this program, okay? So, it's of course, it's turned into one monstrosity far removed from the purpose, but that's the purpose. That's the essential purpose of it. So, uh Along comes uh, Alderman Laspada to say, hey, we're in a crisis. Small businesses are really hurting. Small businesses have been forced to close. They're going to be struggling uh, when they reopen because they will have rent obligations. Uh, they'll have payroll obligations. They'll have tax obligations. And they will have had no money coming in. So it is imperative that we use whatever resources we have to help small businesses survive this crisis. <laughs> And he's told, well, you know, state law does not allow us to use this program that's intended to eradicate blight in low-income neighborhoods for this purpose that would help businesses that would other become otherwise become blighted. You need special dispensation from the state for this. And yet, right before he got elected alderman, 
They had how many billions of dollars for Lincoln Yards in a gentrifying neighborhood that's not blight, not poor, nothing? Isn't that a very perverse program, Daniel? You got to go to the state to get permission to use the money for something that it's intended to be used for. But when oh, Mayor Rahm wanted to spend $1.3 billion on Lincoln Yards, which it's not intended for, that was legal. Do you follow me? What's legal should be illegal, and what's illegal should be legal. What do you think of that? Uh, the, the irony is not lost on me, Ben. Uh, I was at the meetings around the Lincoln Yard development and TIF prior to the coming alderman. Yeah. It, it was striking to me that we could see a budget for $250 million to extend the 606 across the river but we can't find the money to finish the feeder parks on the west end of the trail um there is there's nothing in what i'm fighting for right now that doesn't remove the need for further tiff reform down the line um but in this moment i i'm really hoping that my colleagues both in the council and down in springfield can see that unless we act decisively now. We are we're preserving the status quo to create blight in the future. Everyone here knows how long it takes to get a new small business up and running. So much longer than trying to preserve the businesses that are already doing great work here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm I'm really hoping that we can make a very persuasive case around that. Well, you'll make a persuasive case. Whether anybody buys it is a whole other argument. (laughs) Uh, uh, There's always some other use for uh, uh, TIF money than what it's intended for. You're going to learn that really soon, uh, the longer you stick around the Chicago City Council. All right, let's move on to something else that's uh, been on my mind, the counter-protests, the um, let's get things back to work protesters, the anti-Pritzker protesters who showed up Friday uh, at the Thompson Center to protest against Pritzker. Uh, and in their uh, idiocy, they were waving signs with Nazi swastikas and uh, Nazi slogans. Uh, really, I would say it was an embarrassment to MAGA hat wearers everywhere, uh, but already the bar is pretty low with the MAGA hat crowd. Uh, it was cer- certainly shameful for any Republican that would, 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 through his silence or her silence, would seem to condone this. Uh, you were there, Daniel. Talk a little bit about what you saw. You were there as a counter-protester to the um, Pritzker protesters. Talk about what you saw. I, I was there. I mean, it was a very intimidating space. Usually in Chicago, rationality is the majority perspective, but not that day at the Thompson Center. Um, I feel like there's there's a mixture mixture of stupid, reckless, and desperate. So there's a lot of people coming forward with stupid and uninformed and reckless positions, asking me if I'm paid to be there, telling me this virus has existed since 1982, that I'm causing a mass pandemic of depression through my actions. Uninformed and uh, reckless, I will always protest again. But I would, I would argue that desperation is, is kind of the soil that stupid and reckless can grow out of. And desperation, we have an obligation to address the desperation of folks 
who aren't haven't been able to pay their rent on May 1st, who don't know where the mortgage is coming from or how their health care needs are going to be met. It's, it's on us, those of us who are serving in government, to tamp down on that desperation through strong policy so it doesn't give way to the kind of recklessness that we saw from a bunch of those protesters. And you actually had direct confrontations with some of the protesters? Where did you, they oh, said these... Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, a lot of people thinking that I'm just one of the, the paid hack liberals that are out there. I had never uh, actually heard the word libtard in person for the first time or directed at me. I, I guess that was their version of my, my senior uh, high school experience. Uh, experienced very differently now that I have a lot more certainty of who I am and what I'm fighting for. But yeah, to, to see a, a don't tread on me flag up in Chicago was a rare, rare sign. I, I said to Carlos as we were standing out there, you, you got to remember that uh, as much of uh, Illinois borders Kentucky as it does Wisconsin. Yeah, I would say that um, uh, there's a good chance that none of those people who were protesting can't actually live in Chicago. Uh, I, I could be wrong in that, but uh, I would say a good portion of them are from outside of Chicago. Now, were you wearing a mask while you were at this uh, rally? Yeah, I, I mean, we it's on us to demonstrate what we believe in. And, I mean, who knows where those protesters were coming from. Did uh, So you're wearing a mask, or many of the protesters wearing masks? Oh, no. No, I mean, I'm, we're, we're hearing from people who, like, don't believe in the rational response. So you, you wouldn't really expect that. There were, there were a handful, but it was not the majority of people who were out there. Did anybody mock you for wearing a hat, uh, for wearing a mask? Um, they were more likely to mock me for my sign than for my mask. Because my, my particular sign said that we need to recover before we reopen, which is true. Like, the, Chicago, Illinois are no place to broadly reopen our economy right now. We had more cases and deaths over this past weekend than a city like Oakland, California has had in the duration of this pandemic. Um, the, the comparisons are just not there for where other cities are in the course of this crisis. We need more stability. We need to see where we're going in terms of testing and tracing and these numbers of cases going down before we start to reopen our economy in a real sense. Um, but that is that is not something that these folks were ready or interested in hearing. So when you, after that experience, and when you consider about the rhetoric that uh, the protesters used, uh, and you saw the the signs that they had and the symbols uh, that they were brandishing, were you more or less confident uh, that Donald John Trump will be defeated in November? <laughs> uh, I'm. I'm. Um... I have no confidence besides what will happen through my own actions. Um, 
we had all the confidence in the world that Hillary Clinton was going to win four years ago. Um, and I think it was a false confidence. So I, I believe in the broad values and rationality of this country. But to have a different president depends on the work that folks like myself and good-hearted, rational people across this city and this country are willing to do to get us there. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll close with this then. Uh, Joe Biden looks like he's going to be the nominee of the Democratic Party. Uh, I Everybody knows this, listens to my show, reads my column, but did not vote for Joe Biden. Uh, but I'll pretty much vote for any Democrat running against Donald Trump. Uh even if I'm really still scratching my head, Daniel, at the wisdom of my fellow Democrats for nominating Joe Biden. I'm doing my best to jump aboard uh, the Biden bandwagon. Daniel, it's taken me a little while to completely make that leap. What about yourself? How, what, I know you did not support uh, Joe Biden uh, in the uh, in the primary before we uh, got to this point. What's your feeling about Joe Biden these days? Um. I would say I, I'm as much as I think he needs to develop and express a stronger race and class analysis and really put forward policies that speak to that analysis. He, I think he really needs to confront head on a lot of these troubling allegations that are out there. Um, there's a handful of people who know what really happened, but I, Without going into the details of my campaign right now, if if Joe Biden ended up hearing this, I would say, Joe, apologize, take responsibility, do everything that you can to learn from your actions and trust that people will respect that apology and that they'll be willing to vote for that kind of candidate. Mm -hmm. Uh, You're talking about the Tara Reid accusations. Is that what you're getting at? Yes, sir, I am. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, we will be hearing a lot about those Tara Reid accusations uh, as the summer uh, unfolds, as the campaign unfolds. Donald Trump will be, uh, I'm sure, airing commercials about them. And I just want to point this out before we go. I got a story coming out uh, that in the reader this week uh, that goes into the rape accusation against Donald Trump. So if this is the sole issue that we're voting for, we've really regressed as a country. Uh, the Democratic nominee will have been accused of sexual assault, and the Republican nominee is has been accused of, I believe it's, don't quote me on the exact number, Daniel, I've lost track. It's close to 20 different allegations of assault, including a rape charge against him. He's in court right now. Uh, there's a suit against Donald Trump. Uh, e. Jean Carroll has filed suit. Uh, she says Donald Trump raped her. He says he didn't call her a liar. And so she filed suit against him, uh, saying a uh, defamation suit. So that is ongoing uh, in a New York court right now. So there's, this is not going to be an issue uh, that either. So I, I presume we'll have commercials on both from both candidates on this, um, on this matter. It's not going anywhere. Daniel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. We'll be bringing you back probably to talk about that TIFF Uh, resolution. All right. Well, I'll be looking forward to it. Thanks for the conversation, Ben. Take care. That's Daniel Espada, First Ward Alderman. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everyone.